Welcome to the Urban Insight Podcast from Suico. Hello and welcome to the Urban Inside podcast. Today we're talking about healthy cities for the next generation and in particular child-friendly cities. And with me in studio is the new head of sustainability for Suico, Andreas Yellenhammer. You're very welcome, Andreas, and congratulations on the new role. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Cool. So we'll start with the first overall question, which is how should we be thinking if we're to build a city that's to last for generations? Hmm, that's a good question. I think a city that lasts for generation needs to be designed for all generations. And and by doing that, it's no more and no less than a sustainable city. And and we know what that is. That's a city that's uh, livable, resilient, healthy, circular, climate neutral, connected, all those uh, things that we know about. Basically a city that meets the needs of all its inhabitants and and by doing that in cooperation with its surroundings, it's uh, within planetary boundaries. So we have that uh, system set up already. So if we look then in a bit more detail beyond just sustainable cities and we talk about a healthy city, I mean, how would you define a healthy city then in, within that? Well, that's a, that's a bit of a narrower view then. When we are working with healthy cities, we are mainly talking about achieving good human health in cities. And that means promoting and planning for good mobility, walking, biking, and living close to public transport. And, and that in turn means less air pollution, better traffic safety. So, and, and we're also talking about access to green areas, parks, playgrounds. So it's about how we design public spaces on, on different city scales for a healthy living. Uh, it's also about community resources that we put in place to support citizens' needs to, to live a healthy life what we do together as a municipality to, to promote physical and mental fitness. Uh, and, and then we include things like food, uh, uh, obesity, reduced smoking, alcohol-related problems. So it's a wide area, and, but it's, it's a vital part of a sustainable city that puts human well-being in the centre. Now, the next generation is, of course, the children of today. And this is going to be a, a big focus of the, the podcast that we're looking at today. So what should our focus be there and how should we be what should we be doing to cater for for children's needs? Uh, well, in a way, I, I see children as, as people that are not yet limited by society, which which can be a bit sad, maybe. But this is why their needs and, and voices are so important in city development. If, if we take in their voice and ideas, we, we can tap into their creative minds and, and rethink our cities that way. So placing si- children at the heart of urban planning and design means a more livable, safe, inclusive and, and, and lovable city. And, and my best tip, if you want to see what, what it means to experience the city or, or a neighborhood with a child, go and do that and, and let the children guide you and you'll immediately see new possibilities in, in the public space. And study and interact in, in, in playing, learning, moving. You'll see both hidden values and also what needs to be fixed in terms of safety and attractiveness. And, and, and I'll promise you'll have a great day. <laughs> You've got children yourself then? I do, I do, yes. And I have a, a girl of 12 and, and a boy of 16. So when, you're, when you've been taking them around then your local town, Östersund in, in Sweden, I mean, what have you seen about that city or that town when it comes to how it caters for the needs of children? Well, I think for them it's very important to be among friends and, and to have the freedom of moving around without we having to spend time uh, 
taking them by car. So, so it's about freedom and, and uh, being able to move around a lot. But also having those places that, that gather people and where there's action, where there's activities. And, and we have that in Östersund there. We live close to a ski slope and, and we have the Great Lake here that, that uh, caters for a lot of activities during both summer and winter. Now, we have a bit of a Swedish bias in today's podcast, and it's not because Suiko is Swedish or that I'm living in Sweden. Well, well, it is a little bit because of that, but it's also got to do with the fact that Sweden has made good ground in the area of child-friendly cities in particular. We've already heard Andreas Jelenhammer's take on the subject and how his own local town, Östersund, is a nice place to live for everyone because it's good for children also. And this is key. Perhaps the most key point of the entire podcast. If you want to build a healthy city that will last for generations, you need to make it child-friendly. For example, Enrique Penolosa, the former mayor of Bogota, he made this uh, famous quote. He said, children are a kind of indicator species. If we can build a successful city for children, we will have a successful city for all people. That's Jens Ertz. I'm an um, architect engineer, urban planner, a team manager at Sweco Belgium. And uh, I've been working uh, previously with UNICEF, uh, working on child-responsive urban planning. So it's fair to say Ertz knows a thing or two about urban planning and planning with children in mind. It's true that looking at whether children feel safe and are safe in streets mostly means that the streets are safe for everyone. If we look at squares and we want to see whether these squares are good squares, they're well-functioning squares, we'll probably look at whether they're children and whether there's parents maybe with their children and whether they stay for a long time on these squares. It's also a principle of inclusivity. If you're minus 18, in a way, nobody really has to ask your permission because you don't vote, you don't have real decision-making power. And so it's important to also include that group of citizens because not because they cannot vote that they are not important and also in a lot of cities actually there's a lot of children especially in the global south but also in cities like Brussels where I live there's a real big group of children and young people sometimes in some cities there's 50 percent of the citizens are minus 18 so it's very important to include them. But how do you include them? I mean I I love the idea that it's children first and to be honest if we look after the children's view then the adults will take care of themselves as it were but but how do you get them involved? Well you have to get them involved into things that are really meaningful for them and so it starts with also asking them what are their real concerns and these concerns are not always surprising For example, we also know that air pollution is a real big issue for children or that the lack of spaces to play is an issue. But it can also just be like surprising uh, facts that children come with to the table that you as as an adult wouldn't have thought about. All right then, so you mentioned before that children see cities in ways that we adults uh, don't. Explain that one. Well, there's a lot of um, squares, for example, that uh, in public spaces that... For adults, they might be okay, they are functional because you can walk, you can drive a car. But for children, they they might look at these spaces much differently. They might look at it as a space there where they potentially could play, but they can't because there's always cars passing by. 
or it's a very noisy street or there might be also parks even that look very green but that they are not really useful because it's all like a boring lawn for example where you can't really play so looking at these squares and parks that we might look at as just places where you do functional things are completely uh, differently appreciated by uh, children and young people. And if we make adjustments then to those parks and areas, it's likely also that adults will also be happier and healthier as a result, if I, if I understand you correctly. Yes, children also typically interact. They come with their parents, they come with their grandparents, they they also need like the variety of, of uh, people around them. So it's very important to uh, think about these spaces as, as places that are designed in a universal way, that are very inclusive for everyone. Now that sound you're hearing? Well, it's from down the road from where I live. It's a school for six to ten-year-olds. And I've been hearing that sound for years. It's a pretty child-friendly sound, isn't it? And it sets the scene, hopefully, for our focus that's coming now on the city of Stockholm and how it's being developed for the next generation. Because what's really interesting about Sweden is that it's incorporated the UN Convention for Human Rights of the Child into Swedish law. And that changes everything. It means that children's rights are no longer like a vision or a document that you have on the side somewhere on your desk and you look at it when you have an extra budget or when you have time. But this is part of the main legislation in Sweden and these are real rights and therefore they have to have real consequences. Pernilla Baralt is the Secretary General of UNICEF in Sweden. What we do with adults when we have consultations ahead of a planning process, we need to include citizens under 18 in those processes as well. In a professional way, but on the terms of the age of these children. So it's treating all the citizens in Sweden the same way. We have 5 million citizens under 18 and we cannot ignore them. 5 million? That's half the population is under 18 in Sweden? Yes, Okay, that's a large number then. How do you then include children under the age of 18? Because obviously it's going to be different from, a, from an 18-year-old who's virtually who's an adult, really, to a 6-year-old who won't be able to answer all the questions that you want to maybe ask. I think first, the first step is like with any question you work on, you, you need to have the competence. If you're going to work on a climate assessment or environmental assessment or gender assessment, you, you have to have the competence. And you cannot bring the same exact assessment process to a new target group, in this case children. So you need to have the competence. You need to treat children and young people as professional as you would have done with you and me in a consultation. So for me, it's very much adapted to the target group, in this case young people, and be professional about it. Uh, And I don't think you can be that unless you have competence on children's rights, what they mean in practice, but also on how to have a dialogue with children. But this means then that you have to start educating thousands of people in Sweden in all sorts of walks of life on how to deal with children. I mean, that's a that's a skill set on its own. That's quite comprehensive. Absolutely. And uh, I was working on this proposal to the Swedish parliament in my previous job. And we looked at other countries like Norway, who had done this before us. And what we added to the proposal to the parliament was a huge 
knowledge lift, so to speak, a huge additional proposal where all national agencies had to educate themselves and then in return educate others. So every Swedish local authority, every Swedish national agency is going through this race of competence because without that, the law cannot have the kind of impact we are looking for. Okay, so everyone is working on this today. What sort of concrete implications do you think we'll see? I mean, what sort of result will we see in cities now now that the, the convention is part of Swedish law? We are in the beginning of this. So, But we are starting to see that, for instance, when we look at child impact assessments, they are being used in many cities. Uh, but we can already see that we have to think a little bit different about a child impact assessment it's not something you do and then you put it aside and this building project goes on for five or ten or fifteen years but you you think you kind of did the children's impact assessment so certain documents are in place but we have to develop the methods in which they are implemented so a huge educational process is going on amongst sweden's state organizations to ensure that everybody knows how to deal with children professionally so that their voices can be included in decision-making. On top of that, the National Board of Housing, Building and Planning has put together a 75-page report on how to apply the UN Convention into building and planning in Sweden. So there's a lot going on. But what more is Stockholm doing to ensure it's a child-friendly city, getting ready for the next generation? What are the priority areas? Pernilla Baralt. I think like Stockholm has done and many other cities, the first step is really to talk to children and young people because you and I cannot know what are their biggest worries right now. We know there is a lot to do about feeling safe in your city. It's a lot about, uh, from a child rights perspective and knowing the needs of children, that we have to make children physically move more. We have to do things that promote the physical and mental health of children. That is a priority. But I think we we cannot know this in advance without talking to children and young people. But just as a general rule, a child-friendly city, if you make a city child-friendly, like what other benefits does that bring? I think it's a shortcut to a sustainable development of a city because you are going to turn investments to the younger part of the population 2% of the investments from the European Union's budget goes to citizens under 18. So so I don't think we are like over-investing in this group. So I think it's going to be, um, it's the right thing to do, it's the smart thing to do, and it's the sustainable thing to do. Have we seen like a direct effect from bringing children into a planning situation and we've seen, okay, this has changed the way this city looks. It would have looked in a different way had we not spoken to children. I have, there are a building company that we worked a little bit in Gothenburg and they worked in in a in a sort of what's it a difficult area. We know that inequalities in Sweden are increasing in general in many, in many European countries in fact and all over the world. And the the company had a plan with the city to do certain things in a neighborhood as we adults. So they had planned for instance, a parkour, a kind of expensive a place for children to, to be yep. in an in a area where there hadn't been done a lot of investments. And then somebody said, just wait a minute, let's talk to the children in this neighborhood and have a real discussion before we start what they want to do. And what did they want? 
they had simple suggestions like we like the basketball court but we don't want drug dealers there in the evening we want adults to be present and make sure that we can play basketball on the courts we have so so i think you know you're going to do better investments and like this company said in many cases actually cheaper investments and any investment who is not used a parkour trail that is not used by the children is a huge waste of resources a really interesting example has that happened then have they absolutely absolutely and i think in general that's what we hear when we talk to children and young people the presence of adults and if the presence of adults in child and youth areas in a city is important maybe we have to think about what do the adults need to be more there where the children are if that's one of their general asks Now, Sweden, like many other countries, has been taking children into account in their city planning since the start of the 1900s, putting play areas into centrally located parks, for example. And in the 1960s came the bicycle lanes, and then for schools, play areas with access to nature became a thing in the 70s. But now it's law in Sweden to include children's opinions into city planning. Osa Lindgren has actually been doing this for the past 20 years. She's now head of sustainability for Stockholm's 650 schools. We come out in a school and we're asking them questions. We have to have uh, everyone to speak to us. And uh, they're working in groups and we are working with maps and on the floor or on the wall <laughs> to cool. investigate what they want, what they like today and what they want tomorrow. And what sort of a difference has that made? I mean, what sort of differences are you seeing in schools as a result of taking in children's input? Uh, what we win is that we win trust. Uh, they can participate and they will become involved. And of course, we have some some environments that have some sp- special uh, um, playground, special materials that they want to investigate and they want to have. When, you're, when it comes to designing learning environments then, so what, what should we be thinking about? The most uh, important thing is that we are uh, developing environments where everyone is seen and everyone is safe and uh, everyone has the same opportunities to learn as everybody else. And that's, of course, a difficult thing. And But the, all the children are in the school, so we have to uh, build environments that are good for everybody. So everyone in this podcast has said you have to talk to children. You've got to take children into account. And here we are, a long way into the podcast, and we haven't spoken to a child yet. So I found one nearby. Let's just start then. Um, tell me your name. You know my name, Dad. Yeah, okay, that's true. Right then, my son Emil has been bribed with some extra screen time for this interview. He's just turned 13 and this year started in a new school about four kilometres away. In the past, it was a short walk, but now his world is opening up a bit and I wanted to get an idea as to what his commuting options looked like from his point of view. Back to the interview. So tell me now, school, what's, how do you get to school? You've got, what, what sort of ways do you have to get to school? Well, I have a lot of ways. I have bus, train, bike. Well, I can't really bike because my bike just got stolen. So, yeah. Which way do you like the best and which way do you like the worst and then why? 
I kind of like um, the train the least because it goes so fast and you don't really have time to talk to anybody. But on the bus, I really like that because you always have friends around and then you have time to like talk. And then on the bike, I can't really do that. But I always liked whizzing past cars when it was a big traffic jam. And I was like going, bye, losers. <laughs> okay. So to summarise, my son is to confirm everyone else in this podcast. Children don't see the world like we do. Emil would rather take the bus because it takes longer. I really didn't see that one coming. The train is the fastest way to go, but he wants the social interaction in the morning. For the record, he nearly always takes the train because he's always running late. So that's Stockholm and Sweden then. We've looked a lot here But what about other countries? What are they doing? UNICEF has a child-friendly cities initiative and it includes 900 cities around the world. So there's plenty of cities making efforts to create a sustainable future for the next generation. Back to Suiko's Jens Arts with some specific examples. The most impressive city that I was able to visit is actually Surabaya. It's, um, It's a big city in Indonesia and it's very intriguing to see that uh, the city is, well, first of all, it's run by a mayor, a female mayor. She's called Aburisma, which means mother, if I was well uh, uh, explained. And secondly, you feel like when you're in that city that children are really always somewhere on the front of the scene. For example, the town hall, the town hall is not a place where you go for paperwork. The town hall, the town hall is a place where parents can um, meet with their children and play, use um, a library where they, they can have access to uh, toys. There's, um, there's an IT space where adolescents after school go for hackathons to think about solving issues in their city and thinking about how it can be solved also using I, uh, ICT and, and data so that that's a very inspiring city and it, it seems like also it's a, it's, a, it's a culture in Indonesia to look at a variety of cities and always have mayors and decision makers being involved now it's also interesting to look at um, the UNICEF Child Friendly Cities Network which actually is a very inspiring website also um, where you see that there's uh, more or less like 50 countries where they've identified all the the good practices that cities are looking at. And sometimes there are really topics on urban planning. Sometimes it's also more on the topic of participation. In my own country, in in Belgium, what is a very uh, good example is the city of Ghent. The city of Ghent has developed a really specific uh, child uh, focus in in all its policies. And... um, um, it also aims to become the European youth capital in 2024, uh, for example. To put a global picture on this then, there are more than one billion children living in cities today. And as Jens Arts mentioned, some cities are youth-heavy. More than 50% are under 18. So taking into account their needs helps everyone. We're talking about fresh air, safe roads, green spaces that aren't just functional, that get you from A to B, but places to play and socialise. These are all the kind of things you would want for a sustainable city in general. Now, we've had this focus on Sweden in this podcast since the UN Convention on Human Rights of the Child is part of Swedish law. 
But at the same time, Osa Lindgren works with these questions day to day. And she says that in reality, it's not that simple. We see that the last 20 years, economic uh, factors have become so much more important for all the city planning. So we have to even prioritize the schools and these, uh, all these units that the children are in. I think it's like a critical situation. We have to reevaluate the environment and the child-friendly schools in Sweden because we can see that uh, we are packing in too many uh, students, of course, it's, uh, it's, and I think that's global, <laughs> actually, in the classrooms. The outside environment is also often too small. Not, not all the time. We have some fantastic uh, outside environments, but I think we have, to, we have to prioritize it even more in the city of the society planning. So your, your main concern is that economic priorities are taking too much weight and then they're at the cost of environmental priorities. Yes, of course. Mm. Yes, I am. But we have in Stockholm, we have so many programs and the strategies that points out the children's perspective. So we have to prioritize it. Pernilla Barrault agrees, but sees that the problem is that our system, our political system, needs to take a longer term view. And that's where the challenge lies. I think it's, a, it's in general a very complicated issue because it goes back to the fact that politicians are elected for four years. We need quick results and we have budgets which are one-year budgets. And when we work with children and young people, we often see the consequences of not having invested in them much later in life. But I think investing in children and young people are also in line with going towards a more preventive kind of action in politics. We are paying billions, I think 80 billion every year, for instance, in in healthcare insurances linked to mental health problems. 80 billion Swedish crowns for those sick leaves. Had we invested more in children's mental well-being, we probably would have saved billions of crowns later. But there is this dilemma that we actually we have to become better in calculating the costs of non-action. Uh, and I think a city will gain for sure a long time if they invest much more in children and young people. And I think we need economists and mathematicians who can help us calculate this much better. So we're back with Andreas Jelenhammer. Andreas, we've heard from the speakers now in this podcast. Any reflections yourself? Yes, I, I think it's clear that our experts, they know a lot on, on what to do and, and also how to do it. And many of the solutions are, are win-win, where child-friendly cities are better cities for all. However, there, there are conflicts on, on green spaces in cities where cities are growing. We, we need to secure that the children's voice is not only heard, but also valued. And for example, land properties is very valuable for real estate, but re- removing too much of them makes the city less uh, child-friendly and healthy. Uh, I also think there are a lot of good examples that we've heard on including children in urban development, and there are tools for it. But I also hear that we need to go from from solitary projects or, or single examples to, to full city-scale strategies and then implement them. How do you do that, though? How do you go to that full city-scale strategy? Because that must be tricky, getting all the different stakeholders involved. Yes, it is. And, and, and it's about awareness and also the, the municipality plays a very important role in, in 
collecting and combining all the different stakeholders onto the table. I think we're good at that in Sweden. We are very good at collaboration and cooperation from an early stage, but maybe we need to to put the question uh, of of child-friendly cities higher up on the agenda. And, and I mean, speaking of which, obviously sustainability is a is a big topic today. But you know, health or healthiness is maybe not quite uh, as high up on the agenda. Is that, is that fair to say? And I mean, and should there be a change, or should there be a change? Because maybe sustainability is the most important thing. I think sustainability is is the the parachute that encompasses everything we talk about. So it it will always be there, and it will be the combination of all things that we should aim for. And and the global goals are a great tool and and language for that. But uh, healthy cities has been overlooked, and I also think that a lot of cities uh, weren't built with with health uh, in in a central way. We we built it for transportation and and cars and and real estate. But health issues are moving up the agenda. I think. And what sort of an effect then will it have on cities if we think about sustainability? And we've heard the speakers talking about it. What kind of an effect would it have if we start designing our cities to be child friendly? Then from the start, or any kind of redevelopment is child friendly. I think they will be more attractive cities. Uh, when I think about myself, we, we always are looking for where we can live a, a, a good life. And, and, and uh, cities that are good for children are good for everyone else. Now, climate change, it's going to increase our, our health risks in cities, adults and children. You know, can designing cities to suit the needs of children help us in this regard? Or can it be, you know, can it be a, a conflict here? I think it's more of a win-win than a conflict, actually. Climate-resilient cities are green, and, and these areas, the green areas, can be designed to be multi-purpose. It can be a green playground that also is used to retain water in events of, of heavy precipitation. So vegetation works like a sponge here, and water is also very good to to provide lots of fun for children. Uh, a green city, which is good for, for children and health, is also lower the urban heat island effect here by evaporating heat in, instead of having all those hard streets and, and parking lots that, that soak up the heat. I also think that a, a carbon neutral city is more child-friendly since it removes a lot of the traffic problems and noise and, and put walking and biking in focus. And that's good for, for health and, and playing. And with that, we'll leave it there. Andreas Jelenhammer, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. You've been listening to the Urban Inside podcast from Suico. If you've any questions or feedback, please mail to urbaninsight at suicogroup.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.